You're listening to Motor Mouth with Andrew McCready and David Booth. Happy New Year and welcome to the first Motor Mouth of 2024. I'm Andrew McCready and as always, I'm joined by Motor Mouth himself, David Booth. How was your holiday break, David? Very good. Friends and family uh, got together with my family in Quebec. There was 40 of us. Um, we get on like a house on fire. It was really a joyful occasion. Do you talk about cars with them? They asked me a few questions and, and I do the same thing every time. I Actually, one person asked me for a recommendation again. I generally put people in Honda or Toyotas um, uh, because literally what I don't want is at the next Christmas vacation, somebody coming up to me and going, you know that car you recommended? It turned out to be a total piece of crap. And, and, and Toyotas, unfortunately, whether you love them or hate them, um, don't break down generally. And so that's what I'm looking for, for a recommendation with family. Okay, um, as we're just a couple of weeks into 2024, let's get some bold predictions for the year ahead from you, David, on the hottest and most polarizing topic in automotive now and into the foreseeable future, electric vehicles. Um, let's start with the question of EV adoption in Canada. EV sales in Canada for 2023 are expected to be just over 10% uh, for the nation of new vehicles sold. Um, do you see that number pushing higher at the end of by 2024? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. No, no question about it. Uh, I mean, there is momentum. Uh, uh, the, the question really isn't whether they'll increase or what uh, it's more whether the rapid rate of that increase will continue. And that I'm not, I'm less sure of. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether the rate of increase in the sales will diminish in 2024 or 2025, but at some point in time, it's going to start doing uh, slow down. We, we've talked about this before, this this idea that early adopters have kind of bought in and now it's the really difficult sell, which is kind of the, the not even the middle, but the, you know, the, the ones that say they want to buy one, but aren't convinced. I'm, I don't know how that will, um, will find itself a solution, but it's going to be Interesting to see. I guess price is a big part of it for many people. Well, I, I'd say the first thing is uh, that's going to that is the limitations of that rate of increase. I keep talking about is that it's it, it's still a very polarizing buy. I mean, the most obvious thing is the two um, provinces that are doing the best, Quebec and on uh, and British Columbia, where you live. Uh, have the highest subsidization in terms of they add some money on top of their um, uh, on top of the federal uh, incentives for EVs uh, locally, and so you know Ontario is um, uh, at about half the penetration or even less than both BC and Quebec, and as long as Ontario doesn't have a a, a major EV subsidy it's kind of hard to see how we can keep up the rapid um, uh, growth pace now, but that's not the only division. Uh, I, I, I've talked to you about this before, but really the most enlightening thing that I've seen recently is the demographics of who's buying EVs. And, and, and originally everybody just lumped the downtown cores of big cities 
together. And so basically it, it was thought to be down car, downtown uh, globalist liberal elitists and stuff like that. And there is a certain amount of those. What's really surprising or what really surprised me at least was that the real penetration uh, uh, by about twice as much market share as even the downtown cores are the suburbs and 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 the suburbs are just uh, suburbanites buying EVs are just making a financial decision they look at their daily commute you know up upwards of 60 or 100 kilometers a day every day five days a week they look at the cheap price of electricity compared to the price of gas they factor in higher MSRP but also in British Columbia and and Quebec um, the uh, high subsidization. And when they do the overall package, they can save a big whack load of money doing, uh, you know, buying an EV. It's generally their second car. The big problem is that business model, that buying decision example, which is the very best of reasons to buy an EV is not really transportable to other people. You know, like somebody living in a small city, uh, you know, like my hometown of sits in Quebec, uh, where they might not commute more than five kilometers a day. But when they want to visit anybody out of town, they got to do at least 600 kilometers, maybe 800. And if they're snowbirds, they're doing 3000. So that calculation that really works, say, in Coquitlam or St. Lambert in, in, uh, in, uh, in Quebec, um, doesn't work for them. And, you know, once they, you know, the, um, uh, uh, I think it's BC is at 20, or uh, Vancouver downtown is at 22.9, and Coquitlam, I think, is at 40. Um, Montreal somewhere around 20, and I think one of their suburbs is 42.9. At some point in time, they'll reach a stasis point. You know, not everybody in downtown can afford an EV, so they're not getting to 100% anytime shortly. And and the same with the, you know, like um, the suburbs. Generally, suburbanites probably will want one gas or hybrid car and one electric car. At some point in time, they're going to fill up. And then what will be that third wave? Like we've had what you call the early adopters. I call these the uh, um, the fleet operators because the decision they made is similar to what a fleet operator would make. What will be that third wave? And and I don't. There's where I think the that rate of increase that I've talked about will falter. Okay. So um, a question I'm asked often, and I'm sure you are, is uh, will we be able to buy a Chinese built EV in Canada in 2024? I would tell you that the main reason we can't buy one already because they're already in Mexico. They're been invading Europe, and then the Europeans are deathly afraid of what might happen down the, uh, in there uh, for the last eight, uh, two years, but the last 12 to 18 months, really dramatically, they've really bolstered sales. The main reason we haven't had them in Canada is everyone, including the Chinese, cheats, uh, uh, treats Canada and the U.S. as one market. That's not necessarily true, but you know, we're not a sovereign nation when it comes to automobile imports. Um, right. That's just the way it is. And America has, I think it's 27.5% of, uh, of um, tariff on uh, uh, Chinese cars right now. Plus, they wouldn't be eligible for the, um, for the battery subsidy. Right. Uh, 
that means they're not coming to America probably anytime shortly. However, and normally that would mean, well, they probably want to come to Canada. I would tell you that if the if the Liberals somehow, God help us all, managed to win the next election um, and the mandate remains, uh, the EV mandate remains, and, and, you know, there's not enough cheap cars to, to how would I say it, uh, um, entice, you know, the middle class, the true middle class into moving to electric. Uh, the Chinese may see an, uh, uh, a worthwhile opportunity to come to Canada without going to the United States, and they, they could still make it cost effective. If Paul Levere gets elected, I see very little chance the Chinese will come to Canada. I mean, he may or may not do a similar uh, tariff as the American ha have. He's going to do something about uh, the ZEV mandate, whether it's smart or not smart, I don't know. We've discussed that as well. Um, he could even get rid of the um, um, federal ZEV mandate, which would really hurt things. So I would suggest it's going to come down to elections. Uh, Trudeau gets elected. Chinese could very well come. Paul Levier gets elected. I don't think they come. So, so one of the appeals of, of the Chinese built EVs, at least in Europe and, and, you know, Western markets is price. They, they're priced quite cheaper than even the cheapest EV currently on sale in Canada. Looking outside of Chinese manufacturers, will we see a sub $30,000 EV with a decent range, say 300 kilometers, go on sale in Canada this year? No, no, we're not. We're not. I mean, maybe maybe if in Quebec where you might get something at 42000 that can get down to 30000 with the subsidies. But, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know that there's much of a market for 300 kilometer um, um, uh, EVs, they're basically second cars, um, and and maybe there's some of those suburbanites who say, "Well, I'm never ever going to use because I have two cars. I'm never ever going to use uh, 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 a car, um, uh, um, uh, my EV to go long distance. So, and I have another gas car, so maybe I can get by with only 300 kilometers. I mean, but that's a really niche market. I mean, let's face it: the point of a cheap BEV." Is to get the people that have one car in their fam in their driveway, not two, and uh, they need to be able to afford one car that has to do everything for them. A Civic, if you will, you know, a, a new. I mean, that's been the market of Honda Civics, Toyota Corollas, and and and, and small uh, comp, uh, compact SUVs, and 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 a car that would fulfill a single car family needs a lot more than 300 kilometers range and and by 300 kilometers range i mean real world not you know the natural resources canada or the epa or certainly not that uh, boondoggle that is the w wltp rating system it would have to do at least 400 kilometers on the highway because you know the same when when people like again in my hometown of sitzel and 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 in small communities that are not as rich as downtowns or anything like that. When they talk about having one car, you know, the same car has to get, uh, you know, four people to the grocery store or to a party. It has to go to Montreal from Sicil, or it ha might have to go from uh, Toronto to uh, to Mont Tremblant. And and so, three hundred kilometers of range 
rated turns suddenly turns into 180, 190 on the highway and 140 in the winter. Um, that's not cutting the mustard. So uh, in terms of, a, uh, I'll answer this question. In terms of a sub 30,000 useful car that a single family or a single car family can buy, uh, forget 2024. I'm absolutely certain that it's not going to happen before 2030. And it's very possible it might not happen um, uh, till uh, even till at 2035. And of course, I'm talking about without subsidization. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to get into this argument about, well, the car is affordable because we're throwing $15,000 in subsidies at them. I, I, I think that's a use, useless argument to have. So the big the big cost, of course, in electric vehicles is, are batteries, which which relate obviously to the range. Also, um, what emerging battery technologies, in your opinion, will make the biggest leap in twenty twenty four? Well, twenty twenty four is probably a little bit of a a, a little early. Again, uh, you know, predictions. The, the, normally, we only predict things in like our stories for one year. Um, the ones that are, people are talking about are twofold. I mean, right now, basic, there's um, uh, NMC batteries for lithium ion, which are the high price versions. And then there's LFP uh, versions of lithium ion for the cheap cars. Um, and, and, and they have trade-offs. NMC has faster charging and longer range. LFP is cheaper, uh, but has smaller range and slower charging. The, the two other technologies that are currently being bandied about is sodium ion. So sodium is a salt like lithium. It's so it could be used where lithium is. It's way more plentiful, therefore cheaper. Unfortunately, the ions are seem to be a little bit larger and that makes uh, the speed with which they'll go through the electrolyte somewhat slower. So they don't have as much um, uh, uh, energy density, there'll be less range for whatever size of battery you fit into the car. And by size, I mean physical, and they don't charge as uh, fast, but they will be cheaper. Um, the other thing is solid state. Um, everybody's talking about it. Volkswagen just uh, made some announcements about having a solid state battery. Um, uh, Toyota is one of the leaders in that, um, and, and, and Nissan is working on one. But let's understand, I don't, I mean, they might, I think the earliest we see that any of those are 2026 or 2027. And, 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 and that brings up one other uh, point I'd like to say, which is about future predictions. We, everybody reads a lot of stuff about battery cell technology and battery cell development and new technologies. And, and they read about it and they think it's right around the corner. Um, I remember having a discussion with the Nissan people. And when you factored in when they started working on solid state um, as uh, cell technology and calculated how long it was till it will be, uh, it will be when they release them probably as a 2027 model. It's It was like 16 or 17 years from the time of a development of the cell to the actual production. And pe the reason for that is people mistake electric for electronics. You know, we're used to Apple 
coming out with a new phone every year or every two years and 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 new computer developments every 18 months and you know the speed of chips doubling every year or two years or whatever the law is the fact is electrics do not work on that kind of a timeline and truthfully developing a new battery technology from um cell to actually in car takes longer than designing a, a, a an internal combustion engine it really really does so it's important for people to understand that just because they're reading about certain technologies that are going to advance the world it doesn't mean they're going to be here next week okay we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be right back with more predictions Okay, and we're back with David Booth. Um, okay, this question strays south of the border, but it could most certainly impact Canada's burgeoning battery manufacturing sector. If Donald Trump wins the U.S. presidential election in November, will he rescind the IRA Act, specifically the sections that dole out billions of dollars to companies setting up battery-making facilities in the United States? And if so, how will that impact Canada? The subsidization of consumer EV purchases, the $7,500 federal EV subsidies uh, that are um, being offered are vulnerable. I think that the hardcore, traditional, less government involvement kind of Republican will demand that from him and he'll see no reason not to rescind that because it'll also um, you know, feed some of his base say in Texas, that hates being told anything, uh, any part of life, what to do. That said, I don't see him rescinding the Inflation Reduction Act, which subsidizes the production of battery cells in America specifically, and only America. It's not part of the Free Trade Act. It, it, we're matching those numbers here in Canada, and I, I don't know if they are, are going to try in Mexico, but it only subsidizes a plant if it's in the United States. And a lot of those plants that are being either already made, are under construction, or at least been announced and planned, are either in hardcore uh, GOP states or in swing states that are important for him to win. So... I can't see him unless, of course, he's as stupid as I think he is, um, um, biting the hand that feeds him. These are voters that he needs to keep happy. And and whether they like it or not, whether it's affordable or not, whether it's money well spent or not, um, the Inflation Reduction Act and its battery subsidization in terms of building plants is creating a lot of jobs. And, you know, everybody in the States seems overly worried about the economy, despite the fact that their economy is actually doing quite well. I'm not quite sure why there's that disassociation of reality and perception. But anything that would go against that would be counterproductive from his need for, you know, worship from his base. So I, I, I see a chance, a good chance maybe even, that they might, Re, uh, remove or reduce the consumer subsidies, I don't see a lot of chance that they'll pull back on the subsidization of the plants that have already been announced. I, I, I think it'd be suicide. So, and which in turn, though, is good for the Canadian battery manufacturing 
industry simply because I believe our federal government has kind of said if the IRA in the states rescinds it, then all bets are off in Canada too. I, I they said that at the beginning, and and I, I, like the one thing I mean, we, we can only talk logic. I haven't seen what you know contracts, what signage. The, what they've signed with Volkswagen and Stellantis, and I think it's uh, Northvolt um, um, uh, here in Canada. I'm not sure, like because there's no law here in Canada as the IRA. These are individual agreements, just like we saw with the Stellantis thing. Remember, Stellantis came in before IRA, uh, didn't get nearly as much money, balked completely, threatened to pull out of the states until somebody else agreed to. Um, uh, or until the federal and Ontario governments agreed to kick in more money. So while that you could rescind the IRA and then all bets are off for anybody in the States, there's no IRA here to rescind. We're only matching it. So I'm assuming there's a letter of intent to all those three of those manufacturers. Would those manufacturers have signed on to build their plants if there's an out clause from the Liberal Party to them saying, um, well, if the Americans pull the IRA, we're going to pull all your subsidization too. I'm pretty well connected. I'm not that well connected, and um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's in there. I, the only thing I'll say about it is the Liberal government, including Trudeau and Gilbo, who created the mandates. I, in my opinion, are dumb enough not to write a clause in there uh, or not protect themselves in an agreement such as that. On the other hand, Minister Champagne, who I think is in charge of those agreements, is a very astute fellow. And I would hazard that if anyone in the Liberal government was smart enough to write something that would protect Canada in the case of IRA going away, it would be Minister Champagne. Okay. So sticking with politics, um, in the coming year, will the heat be turned up further here in Canada on the debate on the recently introduced federal EV mandates, which call for all new vehicles sold from January 1st, 2035 to be electric or face fines for each combustion engine vehicle sold? I mean, are we going to be talking about this all year? Or the, is it going to become a political football? I think it is. Um, you know, it's been a very long time. I think it's since any of the auto packs, but certainly the original one, would be the last time I could think of automobiles and automobile production being of an absolutely top five um, election campaign uh, topic. You yeah, know, po I mean, polari polarizing also. Uh, tell me about it. But I mean, a, po a polarizing one. Well, everything's polarizing, it seems, these days. Yeah. But, uh, but um, you know, normally we're talking about the general economy we might be talking about healthcare, the housing crisis interest rates i mean th those are the big picture things um people either i mean people are I, I, I seem to be dividing themselves into two camps and it's not just evs and non-evs it's i like being told what to do because it's good for me and i don't like being told what to do it, especially perhaps when it's good for me. You know what I'm saying? And and so, you know, I I, I wrote, as as you know, a, an open letter to, uh, to Paul Levier um, about what he should do about the EV mandate. And my suggestion was we should just 
add HEVs in there and just continue on 2035. It's a long story. If the readers want, they should look it up, an open letter to Pierre Paul de Beer. Um, but the bottom line is that we can't, we're not, we can't, on one hand, reach that mandate. I, I don't think it's possible. Uh, you know, uh, the three uh, provinces in, in the West, uh, Saskatchewan, especially now that with the recent announcement about carbon taxes, uh, Manitoba and Alberta want no part of it. So uh, there's absolutely no way we can reach 100%, even if all the rest of the provinces do. And even that's almost assuredly not happening. So it's going to become a political football. It's people, I, I think it's kind of like Americans being told they can't own guns or they must own guns kind of a thing, you know, which is almost what it's boiled down to. And, uh, and, and so I think that it will become a political football. There's an election coming up. And I suspect that at least one of the topics was uh, Trudeau is going to say, well, look, I know better than you than what you need, and this is what we need, and I'm trying to save you even though you don't want to be saved. And Paul Levier is basically his message is, well, everything that Trudeau um, does is complete crap, um, <laughs> so we should rescind everything that is Trudeau. Maybe Mr. Paul Levier will be smarter than that. Um, the problem is the smarter he gets, the more his base will hate him. So I, I don't know, but I know it's going to be a big topic. Whether it's the top topic, can't say, but it will be a topic. Okay, let's jump out of the EV sector for a question and touch upon a subject you covered in your most recent Motormouth column and will be the topic of the next Driving into the Future panel on Wednesday, January 17th. Oh, boy. Cyber attacks on vehicles and the prospect of ransomware. We'll just touch upon it because you're going to dive deep into it in a couple of weeks in that panel. But you contend this is one of the least covered yet possibly most important issues facing the automotive industry. Will it be? Will it finally be be a big news story in twenty twenty four? No, I don't think so. Um, I'm going to be honest, and and this will be maybe the most brutal thing I'll ever say in public. And, and this isn't directed just towards Canadians; it really is directed to pretty much everyone. We don't seem smart enough to know we need to be really concerned about this. Okay, uh, we're being uh, you know the general consumer is just. No other way to say this is being brain dead in not understanding that not only is our data privacy being compromised. I mean, in the States, especially, it's a little worse there. I mean, in the States, Nissan collects, uh, somehow tries to collect at least your um, um, uh, level of sexual activity. Quite how they do it, I don't know, but they have permission to try from your car. Okay. Seriously. Seriously, okay. And then there's data security. And, and, and you know, I mean, just to touch on what we do, it used to be that when you invaded a car, at, at the very beginning of the times, you know, 2010, when we heard about car invasions and the experiments uh, and everything else like that, you needed to have access to the car. It was easiest to say, put some malware in, you know, through a USB joint that got into somewhere in the car, and then you might be able to do a remote hack on it. Then we hit 2015, or I think it was when the two gentlemen, um, Chris Flasek, and there was one other guy, I'm uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, 
uh, hacked a Jeep that a reporter from Wired was driving and it stopped right in the middle of the highway and then he had a hard time pulling it off the road and everybody freaked the beagle and everything else. Um, and then, but what's really interesting about that is that when they did that, it took months and months and months to be able to plan for it because, you know, they had to get in through the telematic system and then they had to figure out um, um, how to get from the telematic system to the ECU that uh, actually drives the car. And I don't remember all the details. I did at the time. I wrote a, read an entire book on it uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, sort of understood maybe 40% of it. But, you know, they had to, basically, it was like a maze. Imagine a digital maze where they tried to start at the beginning where they were at the telematics and then finally got to the ECU where they could hit the brakes and shut off the engine, okay? It was really difficult. Now, with all the apps... Uh, and and everything else uh, that communicate with a car, okay? Um, they uh, th- they have something called it APIs. Oh God, I'll forget what that stands for. Program. It's the programming interface. And basically, it, there's a channel of communication from, uh, say, the automaker to the car, okay? And what these apps do is they join that communication. Um, um, uh, uh, line. Think of it as a phone line, uh, if you want. Uh, and they don't create their own communication. They join an already existing line. And then, to, but to authenticate themselves, they have to validate passwords, all that stuff. But it turns out a lot of them don't have nearly the amount of uh, of uh, safety protocols that would stop even you know a, a, a good. Um, uh, hacker from um, from um, being able to invade the car. Uh, one of my guests in the upcoming um, uh, Driving Into the Future panel, Sam Curry, did it with about, oh God, I think about equivalent to about 6 million cars. Um, there were Ferraris, there were Fords, there were a whole bunch of cars. And it wasn't that difficult because these the apps and these APIs um, are actually quite vulnerable to being accessed. And more importantly, what we're fi- uh, I've been told, uh, again, not an expert, but, you know, a little bit of knowledge, is that the difference between old hacks and new hacks is once you've infiltrated this app or this API, you don't really need to know the tough part, which is the architecture of, um, uh, of, of the car, because the app knows it. Okay, it's allowed right. to go everywhere. So, if the, for instance, there was a new, uh, an, an, um, a New York Times article recently about a, a woman, or actually a couple of women, but one especially, um, that was being tracked by her ex-husband. And he was using the Mercedes Me app, okay, as a way to track where she goes, send her messages, send other people messages and take have some know where she is and take photographs of her car when she was out with restaurants, possibly with another date. It wasn't mentioned there. And this was really freaking her, her beagle, as you can imagine. And, 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 and that story is bad enough. It truly is, you know, a horrific story. This obviously not right in any way, bad, bad, bad. And we should be horrified. But the bigger thing is, is that from what I understand, it wouldn't be that hard, hard for anybody. Like, like the ex-husband whose car, uh, name the car was in had access from his from the, when they were together 
to that to the, her Mercedes Me app. Okay, and Mercedes Me and Mercedes wouldn't take it down because the car was only a name. Complicated, complicated. Doesn't matter. The point. What matters is. Even though he had a leg up because he once owned the car, from what I understand, because this Mercedes Me is an app and has that same API vulnerability, it wouldn't be that hard for a hacker worth uh, worth the, his name um, to uh, to do the exact same tracking of anybody he wanted or she wanted through the Mercedes Me app because those that kind of app is. Um, basically the same vulnerability that uh, my guest Sam Curry was was exploiting um, in his experiment that found he could get into BMWs, Mercedes, Acuras, um, Nissans, uh, and lots of other cars. Yeah, well, it's going to be a fascinating uh, discussion, and um, hopefully your reporting on this and the panel will make this a bigger story. It's probably one that the automakers don't really want to talk about because they're probably struggling with security on their own. So it's uh, it's certainly one to look out for, for 2024. We're going to get to the last question here. And we, we can't dismiss one of the biggest automotive stories, the latter part of 2023, the Tesla Cybertruck. You've never shied away from criticizing Tesla and its CEO, Elon Musk. So will the Cybertruck live up to all the hype and be a big success story in 2024? In 2024, in my depending if he can produce them, uh, like, you know it's three years late and 50 percent more expensive than he promised. But if he could produce them in the first year, I think he'll. And and it sounds like he might get to sixty thousand. I think in the first year he'll sell out, um, because there's enough Tesla people that will buy anything he makes. I mean, they can, it, the damn thing could be coal powered and there's somebody that owns a Tesla before that'll buy another one. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it goes. Tesla people can write in and say, no, 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 I'm not like that. But unfortunately, a lot of you are. So the, the bigger question is, does it have legs? And I'd say no. I'm not sure it's going to be an abject failure. But I don't think it's going to do. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be Model Y and Model Three, which is what people have been waiting for, not just from the Cybertruck, but from all trucks. Uh, I mean, so for instance, it, you know, it was supposed to be forty thousand. The cheapest one is sixty thousand US. Uh, the one that's going on sale is over a hundred thousand. Initially, is over a hundred thousand. And I know, I know that all the Tesla Radi are going to say, well, he does things that no other company can do and all that other uh, nonsense. But he's the Cybertruck's going to have the same issue as all the other trucks on the market is as soon as you're towing something, it doesn't matter how big a battery you got. It, it, they can't tow, um, you know, a significant size trailer anywhere, you know. And, 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 you know, there are lots of people that buy trucks that either don't tow or don't tow often, but it's still a, a, a significant portion of the reason to buy. It, if not the actuality that I tow often, the fact that I might tow often, you know what I'm saying? So, and and you combine it with the fact that it's, I, I, how will I say, it was polarized, polarizing from a stylistic point of view when it was launched. It hasn't got prettier and the shock value of doing of buying one, I think, has um, really 
um, not improve, uh, not you know, weathered the the last three years well. I do. I haven't seen one in real life. I've seen pictures of one in real life situations, and it looks more out of place in real life pictures than it does in studio. In a studio, it looks like a concept car of something that um, would uh, you know might come in the future. But every time I, you know, I, I I see one parked in a in a normal looking suburban driveway, I think, oh my god, that looks so so out of place there. And you know, if if you want people staring at you all the time, well, maybe that's the one you do it. But I understand that when they're staring, they may be laughing just as much as they are clapping. You know, so <laughs> right. Well, thanks, David. Great predictions. And uh, maybe we'll do a show in twenty in January 2025 to see how many of them came true. I I, I got no problem with that, uh, uh, Andrew. I looked back on the last time I did predictions, which was 2022. There were six, and I was pretty spot on on five. So I, 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 I'll be happy to, you know, stand whatever criticism or applause that I got for being right or wrong next year. Okay, I look forward to it. Uh, and thank you for joining David and myself on the Motormouth podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Be sure to look for David's weekly Motormouth column on driving.ca every Friday. In addition to his senior writing duties for Post Media Driving, which includes the National Post and driving.ca, David hosts the panel series called Driving into the Future, which we already discussed. It brings automotive and technology leaders to the table to discuss emerging topics in the mobility sector. As mentioned, the next episode, hosted by David, goes live on Wednesday, January 17th, with the subject of how secure is the data in our cars. Go to driving.ca to register for the free one-hour show. If you're more of a podcast person than a video panel watcher, great news is we've recently converted Driving Into the Future panels into podcasts, which you can find now on the Motormouth Podcast channel on all the major podcast streaming services. For your dose of all things automotive, be sure to check out driving.ca where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. And be sure to subscribe to the Motormouth Podcast and Post Media's other three auto-related podcasts, Plugged In, pertaining to all things electric vehicles, hosted by yours truly, and The Driving Podcast, hosted by Lorraine Sommerfeld, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks as always for joining us, and let's all make 2024 a great year. Thank you.